Greetings, this is The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things books and publishing. I'm Dean Karpowitz, editor of the journal and regular contributor to the podcast. Today on the show, we talk with Werner Vinge, author of more than a dozen novels and collections, including the Hugo Award-winning A Fire Upon the Deep and A Deepness in the Sky in the Zones of Thought series. Our discussion covers his novels, the singularity, and he offers some advice for beginning writers. I was joined by editor Adam Berg for this interview. We hope that you enjoy. I'd like to thank you again for being with us today. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule. Thank you, Adam. And I guess the first question we have for you, it's been one that we've been asking quite a few of the quite a few of the authors since we did the Cornelia Funke interview back in April. And she got talking about how involved her fans are with her work. And what we've noticed since is that most of the authors we talk to, the fans aren't very involved. But we get really interesting uh, explanations as to why, which parts, stuff like that. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about fan involvement in your writing process. I think I've noticed uh, two sorts of themes of involvement. One, one is just the hard science angle. Um, one of the most interesting side effects of the job is I, as I get to meet people who are doing uh, wild and interesting uh, things technologically. And uh, there is sort of a, a, a very very beneficial to me feedback there because I get to talk to people about the stuff that they're doing. Mm. Um, and uh, they are uh, p- people that I might not be able to talk to otherwise Know, that they're that they're doing cool things and they're very busy doing cool things, but the fact that they're interested in the hard science fiction angle of my writing makes it possible for us to chat. Uh, the other thing is that there are a significant number of readers who I think are in, in, intrigued by the by the character elements of the stories uh, that I write, and that's uh, actually very flattering to me because. I took a long time before I could write anything but a cardboard character. <laughs> and I'd say that my, my characters are still not my strong point, but um, I've worked very, very hard to make them, make them better. And so when uh, readers uh, say things that indicate that they were very engaged with the characters, that, that's uh, heartwarming. I want to ask something about Fire, Fire Upon the Deep. It serves as an imagined result of the singularity, or in the case of the Blight, sort of the singularity gone wrong, at least for humans. You yourself described the zones of thought as spatial representations of the singularity. But I was sort of interested in the way that you examine thought, particularly as it relates to, like, say, the, the tines and the humans. Can you talk a little bit about the way that you link uh, thought and identity um, in that novel, both individually and culturally? The idea of the tines themselves came out of um, my idea box, where I uh, at least uh, metaphorically keep, keep stacks of ideas when they occur to me. And you may recall Olaf Stapledon's, uh, going back at least to Olaf Stapledon and his star maker, there's been the notion of massive group minds, millions and millions of entities. And very rarely, and at the time I think I originally thought of the idea, I don't think I had seen an example of, of a group mind that didn't have very many members. Mm. And so the idea of Paul Anderson uh, uh, back then, I think, was the only person that I ran into that, that did that. And he was a very imaginative fellow. And uh, I took the idea and, and 
looked around for animal types that would, would fit, and uh, packs of dogs, uh, things like packs of dogs, seem to be uh, uh, on, on the way. So much, much lower count than most uh, social insects. So this allowed me to play with a lot of issues that, that have to do with minds where the granularity was actually fairly, fairly uh, uh, large. It also, by the way, made it was, was a lot of fun to write. The, the Tynes part of A Fire Upon the Deep was by far the easiest part to write, and I'm saying it by comparison with the space opera um, aspect of it. And uh, one reason was that almost every cliche in English that has to do with, um, with people takes on new and fresh meaning when you're dealing with tines or yeah. these small packs. For instance, if, you, if someone says, I'm of two minds on that issue, <laughs> uh, or why don't you tell your conscience to take a walk? <laughs> and so that made it possible to actually do things with stories where I could manipulate characters in, in a way that was overtly physical. For instance, if, and I don't think this happened in the story, but it's an example of the sort of thing, if a member that, of, the, of, a, of a pack that had a certain sort of inclination uh, got sick, much less died, there would, th- th- that could send real ripples through the plot that was going on in the story. Mm-hmm. It, also, it also meant that, that, that it was a very easy bridge to uh, look at questions of mortality. It, under normal circumstances, a, 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 a PAC's concept of mortality is, is a very different thing than the, than the human concept. Yeah. The, the center of gravity of the personality just sort of drifts. In fact, I think I even have the, the notion of um, closely held souls. A closely held soul, for instance, the character Woodcarver in the story, is mm-hmm. a very closely held soul. She has been very careful over a long time to vet new additions to the pack so as to maintain the, the focus of her personality and, and her interests in, 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 in a stable way. And as such, she, in human terms, she would qualify as a person who's seven, several hundred uh, years old. And at the other extreme, there are characters that I call pilgrims that don't really take much notice of all, uh, very promiscuously will replace parts. Mm-hmm. And, and most of those most of those changes means that they totally lose major portions of the personality and they become totally interested in, in new things. However, when they do the replacement and they remain, if the replacement is one that keeps them in happy-go-lucky pilgrim mode, then they, then they maintain something like the same personality. So in that case, you have stability of personality in the sense of something like evolution. In other words, they may, if you have a thousand pilgrims after 50 years, there, there may only be 10 pilgrims left. Mm-hmm. But they, they may be, but by necessity, given their happy-go-lucky nature, they're not too different than they were before. So it gave me all sorts of opportunities to play with things like that without getting into the, the, the d- deepest form of unintelligibilities that might happen if I tried to do it with people. I think it, with humans. At the same time, I think um, a, a reader who's in, interested in that sort of thing, when they read the story and they look at what the times are like, they look back at themselves, and it, and it is sort of a revealing spotlight on, uh, on human individuality. Yeah, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, maybe it was Children of the Sky, but there's 
some conflict in at least one of the characters or one of the packs where we have an old is it school teacher who's kind of an underlying part of her has like um sort of watered down is it vendacious it's it's one of the characters uh, and you kind of play that out right yes there's uh the in the times part of of, of fire upon the deep and children of the sky i really started looking at different sorts of pathologies and uh, when when we talk about when writers talk about writing about the nature of the human condition there are things about the times and their and their tinish condition that sort of resemble you know that sort of have human analogs but even those are are sort of a little bit strange for instance there is an arc of packs going from woodcarver to Flenser to Mr. Steele, that each pack was created by the previous pack, not not by substituting yeah. individual members, which is what I talked about in my answer to your last question, but by essentially creating a whole new pack, but with your own children, mm-hmm. with with children of the members that are in your pack, and and perhaps with donating a member or two. And so, in the case of Woodcarver, who was very focused on on social advancement for the race, and she was also interested in technology, she created another pack called Flenser, or Mr. Skinner, depending on who's talking. And and that pack was virulently experimental. Yeah. That is, it experimented with uh, with other packs. Yeah. And, and it qualified as a villain in, in um, A Fire Upon the Deep. Yeah. And, and in fact, it was sort of like a mad scientist. And Mr. Flenser actually got himself assassin, uh, partially assassinated, yeah. and that and that resulted in a, in, a, in in the, in the character that you, that you mentioned in your, in your in the startup to your question that Mr. Flenser got partially assassinated, and he had an escape plan, and the escape plan was to murder some of the members of of one of his um, supporters and take over the other members yeah. who were basically a sort of a weak personality. And then throughout most of the novel of uh, A Fire Upon the Deep, that combined character, and I don't remember the name that, oh, I think it went by the name Flenser in Waiting. Yes, yes. It was gradually suborned by the meek school teacher. Yeah. So things like that actually make me think that um, I'm definitely not your mainstream sort of (laughs) novelist. (laughs) And and one thing I do think is that the different forms of, of novels, that there's all sorts of dimensions uh, 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 to it, and that one thing that is true, and I think will become more and more evident as time passes, is that things like human nature and the stuff that certain novels spend an awful lot of their time talking about is actually a a, a broader field than it has been uh, Mm. classically known as, and that sort of experimentation I think we're going to see more of. Sort of along the same lines, I wanted to switch a little bit to communication, it seems, it doesn't seem to be, it is kind of central in many ways to uh, some of the thematic stuff in your novels. I thought about not only the most obvious, the telepathic links between the Tynes um, versus human speech, but also the vast net of communication um, that, that humans use. For example, there are conflicting, altered, 
infected versions of the progress of the blight through like the commercials and the those interludes we get that come from the net um, telling the story about kind of where it is. Um, and it's not something that's limited limited to the web either. Um, I get the sense that there are constant interpretations and contradictions involved with things like Fam Nguyen talking about the ancient layers of code that the Cheng Ho have to uh, kind of, the bugs that are involved in there and how their programming is layered one on top of the other um, right. in a deepness in the sky. And then even like the children's science hour um, or children's <laughs> hour of science where the, you know, we have the characters, the spiders or the the people reenacting, you know, what the spiders are doing. Can you talk a little bit about how communication plays a role in your novel? It's like it's, like it's telling, you know, that story, and it's retelling right. it and so on. Right. Yeah, what you just uh, discussed sort of touches on several different ways that I've looked at communication. Mm-hmm. Fire Upon the Deep was written when the Internet uh, and... and uh, and chat uh, in the form of computer bulletin boards was uh, just getting started. And so I generalized that to the interstellar scene, which is embarrassing to write even at the time, because <laughs> I knew that you know, things were changing. Yeah. Um, my, and, and the excuse that I tried to insert there was that uh, uh, this is an inter, interstellar internet, and, and as such, the bit rates were very, very low. <laughs> the, the speed of propagation is very, very high, but the bit rate is very, very low. And so I use that as my excuse for it, uh, continuing to look like a 1980s uh, internet. Uh, but, but but one thing about it was that I think actually encompasses both that and the, the children's hour of, of science that you mentioned, which was which really was just a radio show mm-hmm. with <laughs> a radio show that was the tip of the iceberg since it was actually being observed and manipulated by uh, uh, another another race, yeah. the human race. Yeah. All of those I see, one theme I see in them is that they allow me to do something that actually has been done in science fiction, I think, in the past, and I think it will be done more in the future, and that is to generalize the notion of the, um, of the unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. So in, in, I called it the known net uh, in, in A Fire Upon the Deep, which by, by that I meant presumably there were large groups of people, uh, or civilizations, I should say, Talking at great, talking with something like an internet, but if if there if there was no connection between two such groups, you wouldn't know about the other group. Right. They'd be too far. Say say they're too far away or something like that. And so I called it the the known the known net. And and one thing about the known net is that I was is that I was able to sort of recapitulate all the crank posters that I that I was aware of in the 1980s mm. uh, internet, which is 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 actually probably not as wide a field as it is now mm-hmm. in, in terms of strangeness, but this allowed me to have certain characters that were just monomaniacal about certain things. Some of them were malignant and, and in fact, had, had very large space navies at their command. Mm-hmm. Uh, and others were agents of superhuman powers from beyond the uh, beyond, that is, from the transcend, mm-hmm. and trying to do bad things. And and then and then in, in addition to various foolish people, for instance, the very last poster in the very last page of the of the book. In addition to foolish posters, there were posters that looked like they were foolish. Mm-hmm. And if you looked at the whole novel, especially after a person finishes the novel, 
you realize that there were certain posters in the story that were saying exactly the true thing. Mm -hmm. uh, they were not entirely convinced themselves that they were saying the true thing, and they really, it, for instance, there's one poster that prefaces each of, its, each of its postings with something like, you know, I'm from very far away, and I'm not really sure what you guys are talking about, <laughs> but blah, blah, blah. And uh, at the end of the story, you look back and, and you see that that particular character was not an unreliable na narrator. It was a super reliable narrator, yeah. at least in the domain that it was uh, uh, talking about. And that was, that was just a lot of fun to do, and it sort of grew up as I, as I wrote along with the story, so that when I finished the whole story, I was able to put together a paragraph of an answer, like what I just went through, which sounds like I knew what I was uh, uh, doing at the time. <laughs> And and in some ways it's it's an analog, I don't know for for novel writing and reading, right? I mean, in many ways you're communicating that story, and there are subplots, and we're getting different people saying kind of different things and trying to figure out who's telling the truth and right, so on. Yeah. Right. It also makes it easy to answer. Uh, readers ask me questions like, "Well, what's really going on with Blatt?" Story, <laughs> and I can say. Well, I can tell you what the best theories are. <laughs> <laughs> and one thing about the, the known net, unlike any Internet that we've experienced, is that it goes back a long way. In other words, there's some, some questions that have been debated on the known net for maybe 100 million years. So the, the established answers are very well established, yeah. and, and most of the... And most of the uh, heretical answers are also very well established. I guess there's some play with truth in the in the re-representing the the radio show as well, right? The we have some oh, translator yeah. translators who kind of get you know the spiderish right um, language correct, and others who just kind of wing it and right. Yeah, the 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 radio show. So this is in a deepness of the sky. Yeah. And the, and the radio show actually is, is a very different thing from the no-net stuff. Mm -hmm. it's, it's essentially real-time. The, mm -hmm. the humans that are, that are secretly participating in it are, you know, about a million miles away. So there's a light lag. They, you know, it's not, not quite instantaneous, you know, several seconds. But essentially it's a live interaction. And it, that... That particular radio show is actually the pivot point of the whole novel. Yeah. Uh, and and the uh, the spiders, which were the aliens, they have no idea that they're being so closely um, uh, uh, watched. Yeah. And the on the human side, don't really realize how. Uh, well, the hu humans are in several factions. The translator faction, let me just call it a faction, although it's, it's not exactly a faction. The, the, the translator faction and the, and the people who are listening to the translation of the radio show live, those people who are listening to the translation have no idea how intimately the translators are involved in, in submerging themselves in what is going on. Yeah. And the translator faction actually has split into several factions that are translating so faithfully, but actually that's another of my sort of hobby horses is translations. Mm -hmm. uh, amongst the translators, some of the translators are, all of the translators are translating very faithfully, but they're translating so faithfully that they've actually uh, um, adopted the personalities yeah. of the different factions that are, of uh, the different groups that are debating. The radio show devolves into a very fervent debate about certain issues. 
and uh, and so the translators actually get into a fist fight at the end of the radio yeah. show <laughs> over that. Yeah, and it, it and in some ways, it's the debate over what to do with the spiders is kind of playing out in, right. in the show. Yeah, right. um, you said earlier that character you've you've gotten better at it, but it it wasn't uh, you know your your what you started with as your favorite um, right. part of writing. Um, I found Fam Nguyen really interesting. He he sort of he's he's almost uh, in some ways I read him kind of as, as a meta character as a so the so as as a character he's questioning his identity and reality whether he's the figment of you know one of those super intelligences imagination or whether he's really a real kind of person. I, could you talk a little bit about writing him? Because he's a character that span, spans millennia and two full novels, and it seems like he, be, even we have, even though we have kind of like the prequel, he becomes more of a character over the course of that time, or, right. or more complex, I guess. Right. Yeah. He uh, he appears in um, a fire upon the deep, and mm-hmm. that's that's the novel where he has this great self doubt about identity. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think identity and self-awareness are very important uh, and highly prized things. Uh, was it, uh, you know, Pascal making making the point in so, uh, that uh, uh, it's it's the thing that we're the surest of? Yeah, it's our self-identity. On the other hand, um, it's something that um, is uh, not especially provable externally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is, and it is subject to change. So uh, it's a terrible thing to have something that is, you know, at the center of our existence, and, and is also, um, a, in some circumstances, appears to be so vaporous. And in the case of Fam Nguyen in, in a fire upon the deep, uh, his fears are all valid because there is plenty of evidence from fairly early on in the story that um, there. There may have been an, ori- an original guy with that name mm-hmm. who was somebody somewhere. There are large pieces of uh, 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 that are just sort of constructed, or may have been merged out of other uh, out of other personalities. And he is in, uh, very, very explicitly in some parts of the story. He is just sort of a a uh, hand puppet for uh, one of the one of the uh, uh, superhuman intelligences that is so so far away that the superhuman intelligence has to use FOM the way, you know, we would use a remote manipulator hand in in a high-pressure, deep-diving submarine. Mm -hmm. And so that that was sort of his fundamental problem throughout that novel was that he had these powerful suspicions that that, uh, in some sense he wasn't real. And then later on I wrote the prequel, uh, uh, Deepness in the Sky, where you find out, that indeed there was he he is in large part real and and the thing that and and the thing that made him and his and his friends in a fire upon the the deep the most suspicious of him which was his um his, the fact that he that that what he remembered of himself had been a hero in every dimension you know mm-hmm. a completely unrealistic hero that you'd find in a adventure novel yeah. that that was all true yeah yeah <laughs> Uh, so it, that was really a lot of fun to write, and it also allowed. Uh, one thing I would really like in my stories is that a person can read them to have the type of fun that I have with light reading. And then, if you're interested in other things, there are other things there yeah. 
that a person can find. Yeah, they're both kind of side by side. I think there was something there too with with Fam with um, the the disguises or the disguise that he wears, and some sometimes he slips and becomes this oh yeah kind of superhuman swashbuckling. Like some of that comes out. And, you know, he's given himself away because I think that the Cheng Ho are sort of enslaved. And in some, ah. way, in some ways that is a comment on their identity. They're all kind of lost in that accelerated state, right? Well, in, in, in a deepness in the sky, uh, the Cheng Ho as a whole are not enslaved. But yeah. this, one, this one particular Cheng Ho fleet loses a space battle. Yeah. And they, I think, are, are technologically superior to the people who, who, in most ways, are technologically superior to the people that beat them. Yeah. Uh, but they are enslaved is probably the, the right word. In, in fact, the, the, the techno gimmick for that was a little bit too scary for me. I wanted, I wanted a, a plausible reason that, that slavery might economically work in a technological civilization. Mm-hmm. And, and the gimmick, the, the, the focus... Um, procedure actually seemed to do that and and, and uh, I wanted some over the top villains and I succeeded too well uh, in, in the sense that there were times when it, it, it was hard to write because having psychopathic villains uh, in, in a novel has gotten to be very fairly common in oh, yeah. in, in uh, what do you call them suspense novels or uh, thrillers uh, having psych- psychopathically murderous villains who also also, the, the the motives make sense, at least from a from the standpoint of uh, complete selfishness. That that is something that's rare, and you and you hope that in the real world it doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. The the scene when uh, I can't remember her name, the young girl, she keeps getting becoming unfocused and watches the brutality on the on that one ship. Yeah, you know? I got, I was I was very uneasy uh, 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 about that. It it. I ended up doing it at second or third uh, uh, hand because it was too over the top uh, uh, for me. Yeah. Um, I sort of want to switch to um, uh, technology. The role of technology in your work is one that can either be a catalyst for advancement um, individually or species-wide or um, catastrophic. I'm thinking about the the blight and and so on. And it's usually linked closely with evolution in your work. Um, in short, it's part of our, uh, I read it as part of our human grand narrative. And I wonder whether you see it primarily as antagonistic, protagonistic, or perhaps just a necessary force that we have to learn how to deal with. Well, first of all, I think the necessary part is, is, is uh, true. Tech, technology is something that... Um, if 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 we for if we forsake it, well, first of all, it's probably impossible to forsake it without everybody, uh, you know, uh, dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if some way, if some way we're found to, to to forsake it without without that prerequisite, pre- pre- uh, there there would be billions of people who would die mm-hmm. because we're you know living much better and 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 we're. Than we would otherwise, and and we have enough food, even though we have billions of people on on Earth. So technology is something that we can't give up. It's also something that is not exactly manageable. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, that's I think that's a, a, an extreme understatement. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
It's also something that has extreme upsides. In other words, I can, I can imagine situations that are so much better than the situation we have now that we look back at our time in the 21st century, uh, I mean, uh, the future people would look back at our time in the 21st century with the same sort of wincing discomfort <laughs> that, that we look back at, at the depths of the Middle Ages. Right. So things can get enormously better. It is also true that uh, it's very easy to imagine downsides um, that go from from everywhere ex- from everywhere like unending tyranny uh, to to the extinction of, of the human race. So we're we're playing in a very very high stakes game that we can't get out of, mm-hmm. and the stakes are, are are both large going up and going and going down. So I I think that there is plenty of reason to be uh, uh, optimistic about how, how things go, but it's also it's also good to think about uh, uh, what we can do to to not behave suicidally yeah. foolish. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny because when you're talking about technology, I'm just kind of thinking about the way Star Trek portrays our current time, where it is kind of looking back with that wincing. In your story, The Ungoverned, you have a really fantastic quote in the afterword of it. It's uh, one planet is too small a place for any race to live safely. And right. So, just kind of segueing off of this, I mean, in our interviews with interview with Joe Haldeman, we talked quite a bit about you know kind of the future of the human civilization, where we're going, where we can go, what'll happen to us. And I think it would be an interesting question to get your take on. I mean, where do you see the human race going? I mean, because if one planet is too small for any race to live safely, we're going to have to go somewhere else. But, I mean, are we ready for that? Are we ready to face whatever we can find out there when we don't understand each other? One question in there, right at the end of what you said, uh, are we ready to face what is out there? And, and the, if, if one looks at it at an interstellar scale, we, we truly have very little idea what is out there mm-hmm. in, in, in terms of, of uh, other, other races. Yeah. Uh, one thing to realize is that there probably have been Earth-like planets in the universe for billions of years longer than Earth has been around. Mm-hmm. Almost, in fact, almost from the beginning of the universe. Yeah. And if there is intelligence anywhere else, the sorts of questions that we're speculating now, like in this interview, uh, are, are questions that have been speculated upon and answered probably mm-hmm. billions of times <laughs> over. So that means that the present state of what's out there in the sky is very likely, could be very likely, much more advanced than what we have now. And so that, that aspect of the question of you know finding what's what's out there is uh, uh, presumptuous to imagine that we can do anything. Yeah. On the other hand, it isn't. It is entirely possible on the basis of of the fact that we can see a lot of what's out there and we see no evidence of intelligence. The other extreme, and that is that that either technology is very very dangerous, and so all these other all these other instances are 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 very short lived, or we actually are alone in the universe. And there's a British astronomer named Martin Rees, who um, wrote a, a book uh, uh, optimistically titled "Our Final Hour," <laughs> and uh, in the introduction, he as I recall in the introduction, this is an astronomer now, he says that he personally thinks that we are alone in the universe, mm-hmm. that there is not intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. 
uh, universe is a big place to say something like that. But he says, if, if that is true, then the sorts of questions like you and I have been talking about, about technology and its, and its implications and, and what we can do with it, uh, would indicate that this planet, this place, Earth, at this time in history is the most important time in history, most important time and place in the entire history of the universe, because we're at sort of a sort of a bottleneck point where we're still trapped on on one planet, and if we really mess up, there's not you know we we could destroy life on this planet, including ourselves. On the other hand, if we don't mess up, it's quite possible that we would be almost forever until you know the universe itself dies, almost be forever beyond the reach of, of capricious disaster as a, as a race. Mm. And that's a very intriguing uh, sort of notion, although I, I'm, af- I'm afraid we will discover ways of making disasters happen on larger, <laughs> larger scales. It's still an, an, an intriguing notion, and in, in, in effect, he's managed to raise the stakes even higher than, yeah. they, than they were before. Just kind of going off a little bit about the space exploration travel type stuff, uh, in your short story, a long short story, long shot, you followed kind of just the ship, Elise, through the stars, kind of looking for any way to save the human race. And I'm kind of wondering if you could talk about that choice a little bit, because just about everything I've read, it's it's got to be a human on the ship who's going to look for the planet to save the human race. It's got to be the human that's the hero. But in this, we see ourselves using technology in a way that, I mean, it's responsible really to send something out there that is somewhat expendable rather than a human so i'm wondering if you could talk about that choice a little bit and kind of how you came to it right yeah there's several angles to that one is from a, from a, a purely nuts and bolts aspect when i was writing the story i was trying to imagine what the uh, minimum interstellar uh flight uh technology would be uh, for instance, the rockets that we have right now, we have a couple rockets that actually, we have a couple of space probes, actually, I think four space probes, that are going to up, end up at interstellar dif- distances mm-hmm. after hundreds of thousands of years. And if, if, we really, if we really use the rockets that we have now and, and you know, spent 15 or 20 years on it, we could probably make a mission that would get to a nearby star in, in 10,000 years. And so I was trying to imagine what would be the, what would be the, what, what could you do with something like that that uh, w- would have any significance? And what I ended up with is, is, is far-fetched, hence the title of the story, Long Shot. Uh, but um, it, uh, you know, it's, it sort of hung together. So that's what I was attempting there on a less uh, writer workshop type uh, level. Uh, the thing I'm, the thing I, that occurs to me is that uh, it's very likely that that we will eventually get out and and settle on other other planets uh, and and play, and uh, other places in this solar system. It is conceivable that ultimately it 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 won't be humans so much as as our successors. That is, which you know m- might might be people very much like us. Uh, at least in terms of uh, attitude, um, but they also they also might be uh, you know uh, more more along the along the line of androids, mm. and um, uh, there, there's a there's a lot of rough and tough things about uh, 
uh, space. In some ways, it's a, a more benign environment than the, than the surface of the Earth, but in other ways, like the, in some places, the radiation level and and certainly um, its friendliness to a to an unaided human is uh, is very unfriendly to an unaided, an unaided human. So exactly what ends up there in, in interplanetary and interstellar space is, I think, still unclear, but I think that it's something that we can do and that uh, the, the sentiment that you quoted in my, in my afterward uh, to Longshot about the Earth being too small a place to be locked up on um, is, is, is true. And actually, it has been a long-term, long-time theme in science fiction. Uh, I, I grew up on that idea in the 1950s in a, with astounding science fiction. Mm. And uh, I, I think it is uh, uh, definitely true. We have weapons now that, that make, it, make it look like we're a bunch of people that are all locked in an apartment house that's built out of dynamite. <laughs> yeah, and we talked with Joe Haldeman about this too. It's, it, it, I wonder whether we have the... It, it just seems like that dream is fading or becoming privatized i i was listening to npr yesterday and they they were launching the or building the biggest ship in history you know on the planet it's called the prelude and it it's to it's to get oil you know and so it, it seems like we're our obsession is with extracting everything we can out of this place rather than setting up, you know, ex- explorations of space. You know what I mean? I mean, all the cuts to NASA. Right. And yeah, I, I'm certainly very disappointed that uh, uh, space travel uh, uh, has not progressed more than yeah. it has. In yeah. fact, it's a, it's a good example to point to when you're confronted with a an extreme techno optimist such as myself it predicts amazing changes in the near future you know you trot out something like the space uh, program's progress since uh, apollo you know to uh, put those people in their place <laughs> uh, on the other hand I, I i really think that we are sort of at a turning point in the, in the, in the space thing and that it, it that it will turn out that um, uh, that there are ways of doing it and it may turn out that there are, are, are ways that actually um, involve motivations that do not do not come from large government programs. Mm-hmm. So the the uh, the private enterprise space stuff uh, ultimately may actually have more staying power than the uh, than the uh, state sponsored, the government sponsored stuff. Mm-hmm. In in the end, if it takes off, of course, uh, there will be. Uh, uh, governments galore in, in involved. Uh, for instance, if we got a hundred dollars a pound to low Earth orbit, uh, I think you would just see a a renaissance is too weak a word. Yeah. It would just be an explosion of of uh, uses. We have huge telescopes on the surface of the Earth now. You know, ten, lots of ten meter telescopes. And um, if we had a hundred dollars a pound to low Earth orbit, and what that implies, what that implies for, for further distances. Um, uh, you'd, you'd have you'd have arrays of ten meter telescopes that would give you the equivalent in, in, in space of kilometer and ten kilometer apertures, mm. uh, at, at least in terms of resolution. Yeah. And uh, at that point, you're beginning to beginning to be able to do head counts on on planets of other stars <laughs> of, of any prospective aliens. Yeah. 
So one last question. Um, something we always laugh up with just because everybody has really interesting answers on it. Uh, what can we expect to see from you in the future? Do you have any stories planned out, anything you're writing right now that you can talk about? Uh, the thing I'm most focused on uh, right now is to write a sequel to uh, Rainbow Zen. Mm. And uh, that is going very, very, that planning even is going very slowly. Mm. I have several, I have at least two other sorts of major thematic uh, topics. And, and one is would be more in the in the zones universe of a fire upon the deep and a deepness in the sky, um, uh, and the other is I had a, a a novel that I'm still very intrigued by uh, that I wrote in the 80s called um, Marooned in Real Time, mm. and um, I think there's some obvious uh, uh, sequels uh, uh, there. Uh, one is the 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 the, the possibility that uh, given enough time. Um, if the humans went away for one reason or another, which was actually the main main topic in Marooned in Real Time, if the humans went away, what might eventually replace them? And uh, uh, I have a fondness for birds, yeah. <laughs> uh, so that would be that would be an interesting uh, sort of story. And mm. and in fact, uh, for people who are interested in in birds that are smart, that has been done in science fiction. I think Michael Swanwick had a had a science fiction novel where sometime millions of years in the future the, uh, the birds uh, arise to human levels of intelligence and they can't fly anymore any more than we are good at, at uh, climbing trees mm. but uh, uh, a paleontologist could tell they were descended from birds yeah. well it sounds like you've got a lot of good things coming up then <laughs> oh, I, would, I, I, would, I would really like to get some of these things written down <laughs> <laughs> Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. So, uh, once again, we would really like to thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to be here with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, thanks a lot. And that's our show for today. The Pub is produced at the University of Wisconsin Parkside from the studio at WIPZ 101.5 FM. You can tune in on Saturdays at noon to catch new episodes. And you can also find us on Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Or you can head over to our website at straylightmag.com for fiction, poetry, art, and of course, podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for regular updates and new content. Until next time, thanks for listening to The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things books and publishing. <laughs>